turn to page 394. Little old lady at 12 o'clock! Three, two, yes! Sirius Black has escaped from Azkaban prison. He's a murderer. Sirius Black is the reason the Potters are dead. And now he wants to finish what he started. I want you to swear to me you won't go looking for Black. Why would I go looking for someone who wants to kill me? There's something moving out there. It was a Dementor. One of the guards of Azkaban is searching the train for Sirius Black. It is not in the nature of a Dementor to be forgiving. He finds me. Because when he does, I'm going to be ready. You must look beyond. Filthy little mudblood. Foul, loathsome, evil little cockroach. That felt good. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program. I'm Paul Spataro, and it is once again my pleasure to have my favorite Harry Potter couple join me for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So I welcome today Dave and Holly Weeder to the show. Hi there. Hello. Hey, guys. Thanks for coming on again. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you. I almost felt like us. doing a, a Scott Gardner. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> everybody wants to do that. Well, but you also have the you know the initial that not everybody knows what it stands for. True. Yeah, Scott has got the H, which he refuses to tell anybody what it stands for. I'm not quite as secretive, but I, I swear one day I'm going to figure out that middle initial. Yeah, no, you're not as secretive because I know what it stands for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then there's, there's also the the mystery of Shag Matthews that I know. I just like being in the know on these things. Well, let's not forget Trentus Magnus. Yes, that's another one. Well, that one's that one is discoverable. Yes, you just have to do your research, and it's discoverable. <laughs> but I'm not going to say any more than that on that one. Po- podcasters are are riddles wrapped in enigmas, nestled in a in a. <laughs> well, I would say I would say the the least mysterious the least mysterious uh, second identity is BTTB. Yeah. <laughs> So we're here today to discuss the third Harry Potter film, and I wanted to recap where we were on the first two. If my memory is correct, and you guys please correct me if I'm wrong because I'm doing this off of memory, I think we all found both of the movies to be somewhere in the range of Jaws 2, and I'm pretty sure, Dave, you and I had rated the second one slightly higher than the first, and Holly reversed that. Is that right? That right. seems right, but I've slept since then. <laughs> okay, well, well, we're going with that as our premise going into this one, because at the end of this one, we're going to not only rate this one, but then put it in line with the other two as to where it falls. Because we'll, we'll do that through each movie and until we have them all in sequence as to what, from best to worst. And uh, I use worst in quotations because I don't really think there's a bad one in the bunch. 
No, I'll agree with that. So now, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban came out in 2004. We have a new director, Alfonso Cuaron, came on to do this. Chris Columbus, who had directed the first two, took a producer role on this one. And I do think we see a fairly significant change in tone uh, over the first two based on that directorial change. Mm -hmm. uh, now, had either of you read this book before seeing the movie? I hadn't. I had not. Okay. This is this one. Well, actually, I, I followed my normal procedure. I had read this one before I saw it. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember when I saw each one. This was the first one. Uh, my daughter was a baby at the time. She was born in 2000, so she was four years old or three years old. And she had slept over someone else's house, I think uh, possibly my sister's house or something. And we took my son, who was seven at the time, to see this one. And in hindsight, he may have been just a tad young to see this one in the movie theater. <laughs> but this, you know, this was the first one I, that we took him to see. And then uh, after that, he and I uh, were regular movie buddies throughout the, the balance of this series. But uh, I had read this, and I could tell you, having read it, I was more intrigued with where they were going to go in the film than I had been with the first two. I found the first two, as I read them, to be very entertaining, but clearly meant for a young adult. Yeah, uh, and and I thought the films kind of reflected that. I thought they were very entertaining, but you know, more aimed towards young adults than adults. This one. I could, you know, I could sense that that the that J.K. Rowling was aging up a little bit. She was expecting that her audience was aging along with Harry, and trying to be slightly more mature or somewhat more mature in the themes and the uh, and the story itself. And and I think that was very very clear reading the book. Um, yeah, and it it progressive it progressively does so. Just to, as the series goes on, it's definitely something that grows up with. Honestly, I was hoping to be the readers. Yeah, As it's almost—I mean—it's almost like they were designed to that you should just read one book a year. Yeah, that's As always you, been my philosophy. You know, you should start at like like twelve years old and just read one book, and then leave it till the next year, and then read the second book, and then just do that through all of them. Yep. But you know, right. nobody does that. No, <laughs> they they blast through them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're intrigued enough to keep wanting to read, you're not going to wait a year to read the next one. But uh, I got to say, before this opened, I was somewhat questionable about the casting on it, and I thought that was borne out a little bit. And I think we should talk a little bit about the cast, because we do have some, some new new members to the cast, and we have some cast changes uh, the first one to me is is the most obvious is Michael Gambon coming on to play Dumbledore. Right. Yeah. And I gotta say, I thought Richard Harris was like kind of the ideal Dumbledore. So I don't think they could replace him with anybody who I was gonna say, oh, this is just as good. No, I and and I, I agree with you. He was the epitome. I mean, everything he did was perfect Dumbledore. And I, I kind of thought with, you know, with uh, with Richard Harris, he he had this tone about him in his voice that was very reassuring and comforting 
And there was something he he presented it on the screen exactly the way I pictured Dumbledore in my mind reading the books. Mm-hmm. Right. Michael Perfectly Gambon, calm, serene almost. Yeah, Michael Gambon is a little bit more, uh, you know, there's a little bit more of an I'm going to yell at you attitude with him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's a little harsher and, and a little bit more physical in the way he played the role. And I can't say he played it badly, but he wasn't my picture of Dumbledore. He got closer as the film went on. I think he refined it a little as you got towards the latter films. But yeah, in this one and in the next one, it was it was in a that's a it's like a brake check. You're cruising along and suddenly you just stopped. Mm-hmm. And it, and it, I mean it was sad because, like I said, he he was such a perfect match for the part, Richard Harris. That is. Uh, that it made it, it made it hard for Michael Gambon to to take over the part and be accepted. Mm-hmm. You know, and when you have somebody who's so so closely mirrors what's in the book, then you know you, your problem I think becomes: Do you try and play Dumbledore the way you see him, and as fits your own persona and personality, or do you try and do a Richard Harris imitation on the screen? Well, he, I mean, he did add in some of the. Uh what was it, Irish? A little bit of Irish to his accent? A little bit, yeah. To kind of honor Richard Harris and kind of carry it forward, but then he definitely made it his own, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that was a smart choice. As much as, as much as I loved Richard Harris in the role, if he was just imitating him, I think it would have taken some of the heart out of the character. Right. Mm-hmm. I, you know, he did need to make it his own, and, and as you said, I think as the movies went on, it did become... Or I, I don't know if it did. I became more comfortable with him in the role. I, I, that's, I accepted yeah, that's probably better. <laughs> yeah. So the then you know compared to the book, uh, which Gary Oldman was not what I pictured as Sirius Black at all. No, I pictured more. I mean, this is gonna sound weird, but Ron Wood from the from uh, the Rolling Stones. That really? sort of spiky hair. Yeah. Interesting. That, that's looking. an interesting thought. See, I pictured somebody like a, you know, like a bear of a man. Uh, who's the guy from uh, Flesh Gordon that I'm thinking of? Oh, uh, Brian Blessed. That's who I'm picturing. That's who I picture as, as Sirius Black. <laughs> what's, what's that? I'm sorry. Are you flashes alive. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's that's kind of who I pictured in the role as I was reading the book. So to to go from you know like I said a big bear of a man like him to Gary Oldman who's a great actor but somewhat slight in his build at least in comparison to other people on the screen uh, it was a little bit of a an adjustment for me especially with this series because we had already had so many characters or actors who were so well fitted to the character and I and I always come back to Alan Rickman as Snape. Uh, oh. You know, I, I can't imagine any better casting than that. Well, there was I was actually reading a meme that compared books to movies and they would compare book characters and have a, a rendition. And then the, the who what we got in the movies and Alan Rickman was was both. <laughs> well, I, I I mean, I don't know. And I've never heard her talk on the subject, but I would not be at all surprised if J.K. Rowling was picturing him as she wrote these books. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, he was a well-known actor. Yeah, he. I mean, he was. He already had a, uh, you know, a, a following at that point, and he, he's just like I said, just so perfect in the, in the role that I could easily see her 
picturing him. The the uh, closest thing I have ever come to that, and this one was clearly intentional, was when Michael Crichton wrote, I can't remember what the name of the book was. It was a book about Japan. Rising and, Sun. Rising Sun. And he, he, he admitted from the start, when he wrote the book, he pictured Sean Connery as the main character. Mm-hmm. And, and they then they friends. made the movie with Sean Connery. And that's, that's as close to this as I can think of. And I, when I read the book, I knew that he pictured Sean Connery. So in my mind, I pictured Sean Connery. Yep, I did too. So that, that's, that's as close as this, to this as I could come. What did, what did you two think of Gary Oldman in the role? Well, I mean, I hadn't read the book first. So whenever I did go back and read the book after seeing the movie, it was like, oh, yeah, Gary Oldman. It made perfect sense to me because he's so amazing. <laughs> in everything that he does. Yeah, Gary Oldman does not give a bad performance in anything. Oh, no, he's a great actor. That I don't question for a second. I just, uh, you know, when I read the book, I pictured him as as a very imposing individual. Somebody who, if you walked down the street and you had no idea who he was, you'd still be afraid. See, I pictured him thin because he had spent the time in Azkaban. So I pictured him emaciated and kind of what we got, somewhat what we got with uh, Oldman. Oldman looked a little bit older than I pictured him, but a little bit older because Sirius is supposed to be the same age as his parents, of course. And yeah. He, but he was very good looking, and I, I can see a little bit of the thinness from being in the prison and hollow eyes because dementors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I definitely agree with the thought process of the you know being emaciated from being in prison, but even when when he stands next to Lupin. And he's like almost a full head shorter than him. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, that it just doesn't seem right to me. Like I said, you know, I, I pictured somebody who would be very imposing if you saw him. And and that was the one thing that was a little bit hard for me to accept. I thought he played the part well, but I think they should have done a little bit more uh a little bit more with the camera work to just make him appear physically larger. Yeah, if if it's he's supposed to be the, the scary one in this movie, I can see that. Then we go to David Thewlis as Lupin. He is also not what I pictured when I read the book. Right. But quite frankly, I can't remember what I pictured, so he's kind of taken that over in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> that's I, that's exactly where I am. Definitely. I did have somebody else in mind when I read it, though. And like i said i can't even remember so so he you know he he does fit it he's a little bit more definitely a little bit more soft spoken than i anticipated refined and a little bit i don't want to say dapper but he's a little bit cleaned up because i pictured lupin just being completely raggedy right right yeah well more more along the you know even in his normal physical condition more along the werewolf lines yeah, somebody with a very heavy beard. Even even when you know one of those people who shaves and a half an hour later has a five o'clock shadow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and his robes are supposed to be all worn and torn because he's always having to travel and he can't find work and you know, so he's not supposed to look all put together. I'm just looking here on on uh, Wikipedia, and it's, it's just an interesting thing. It says Michael Gambon as Albus Dumbledore, the headmaster of Hogwarts, is under the cast and one of the greatest wizards of, of the age. Gambon assumed the road role after Richard Harris, who played Dumbledore in the previous film, died on 25th of October 2002, three weeks before the second film's release. Despite his illness, Harris was determined to film his part, telling a visiting David Heyman not to recast the role. Four months after Harris's death, 
Quran chose Gambon as his replacement. Gambon was unconcerned with bettering or copying Harris, instead giving his own interpretation, putting on a slight Irish accent for the role, as well as completing his scenes in three weeks. Rumors of Ian McKellen being offered the role started to spread, but when asked, he rejected the rumors and stated that he had played a similar character in Gandalf of Lord of the Rings trilogy. He also stated it would have been inappropriate to take on Harris's role as the late actor had once called McKellen a dreadful actor. <laughs> Harris's family had expressed an interest in seeing Harris's close friend Peter O'Toole being chosen as his replacement. So now I'm curious, what do you think, Holly, of either Ian McKellen or Peter O'Toole in the role? I can agree with Ian McKellen not doing it because, yeah, everybody would have just seen it as Gandalf. So that one I told to get uh, Peter O'Toole. That would have been really good. Yeah, I think Peter O'Toole would have been as close to Richard Harris as we could get without being a Richard Harris imitation. <laughs> right. So that, that would have been interesting to go with that. That would have been really, yeah. Ooh, man. Peter O'Toole would have been interesting. Yeah. And I love Ian McKellen, but he's right. It is too similar to Gandalf. I, and I heard he he turned it down, but he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll be Mad-Eye Moody if you want. Oh, really? That would have been yeah. interesting, too, though. Yeah. But now, uh, actually, actually, <laughs> shockingly enough, I also pictured Brian Blessed as Mad-Eye Moody. <laughs> He's my go-to actor for, for, for big, burly, English, you know, bear of a man type roles. Now that I see. I yeah. can see that one big time. And yeah, he's very blessed. It's crazy too. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But uh, you know, the other thing that I read was that uh, apparently Richard Harris had at one time called McKellen a dreadful actor. <laughs> so he, he, there was another reason why he didn't want the role, which is interesting, wow. I think. Anyway, one back to the end. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Anyway, back to where we were. Uh, Still thinking about Peter O'Toole. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like I'm picturing him in Stardust when he was the king who was dying and I'm like he had that mischievous yeah. quality about him that would have been really good. <laughs> you know you know what he has which is they always mention in the book is that twinkle in his eye. That's that's something I think Peter O'Toole definitely had. I'm and I'm picturing you know I'm picturing a somewhat younger Peter O'Toole cuz I'm thinking of him in like my favorite year. Yeah. And Supergirl. I'm not thinking of that one, but okay. <laughs> so now, with regard to Thulis, uh, Wikipedia says he had previously auditioned for the role of Quirrell, oh. and, and he was Quaron's first first choice for the role of Professor Lupin. He accepted the role on advice from Ian Hart, who was cast as Quirrell, and had told him that Professor Lupin was the best part in the book. Quaron told the. the Thulis, excuse me, that he thought Lupin was gay, describing him as a gay junkie, although his <laughs> idea turned out to be incorrect. Thulis had been seen in the first two films, or had seen the first two films, excuse me, and had only read part of the first book, although after taking on the role, he read, read the third, he was excited about the prospect of making a children's film and enjoyed its filming. So that's, I guess that's kind of uneventful. <laughs> it's not <laughs> as good as, as Richard Harris calling him a terrible actor or anything. I'm glad that he got Lupin, though, instead of Quirrell. Yeah. Yeah, I think he would have been fine as Quirrell, but, you know, much like Quirrell, he would have just been gone after that, and that would have been it for him. This way, at least we got to see more of him. Uh, 
so as far as other new people, we have Emma Thompson as Sybil Trelawney, who I, I kind of like the way she was played in the book and in the movie. Because yes. mm-hmm. I, I think she's she's pretty interesting because you see her as a total fraud, and then there's the scene when she has the legitimate, you know, vision. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, what's going on here? I like what Emma Thompson said when she was playing her. She was like, if you're always looking into the future, then you can't see what's right in front of you. So that's why she's always bumping into stuff, <laughs> and, you know, totally oblivious to what's actually happening right then and there. <laughs> that that makes total sense. And I, I, yeah. I, I never heard her say that, but that's that's great. That's a good quote. And I love that it's Emma Thompson because she used to be married to Kenneth Branagh, who was in the second one. Yeah, that's true, too. So now, that's I think that's it for any significant new parts in the movie. Uh, any of the returning actors that you care to uh, discuss? Um, well, I mean, they definitely they changed up the look of Professor Flitwick, you know, with... Um, Warwick Davis. Warwick Davis, yeah, he he. They totally changed the look, and I don't know why. It's and then they kept that look for the rest of the movies, but see, I didn't notice it that. It took me a minute <laughs> to figure out that was the same character. <laughs> I knew it was the same actor, but the same character. I'm like, oh wow, okay. All right. Uh, what did you think of our three leads? And you know, we talked about this with the last one. Their growth as actors. This is where I think that kind of took hold because all of them got a moment in the movie to to emote and to to dig in. And, you know, you could tell they're still rough around the edges, but they're really starting to get their stride in these characters. Right. I thought the one that I saw more subtlety from than I had seen in the past was Rupert Gint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or Grint, excuse me. Because in the first two, he was, he was kind of madcap comedy. Yeah, and in this one, you know, there, there's a lot of scenes where he's just in the background and he's giving kind of a look or a reaction, and I kind of liked that. I thought, you know, like I said, it gave some depth to his character. You start seeing some subtle movements towards a romantic relationship between him and Hermione. Mm-hmm. You know, like her taking him by the hand at one point. I think just little moments like that that kind of – you know, foreshadow where it's to go. And I think we talked about this in the past. I think, you know, that anybody who's not paying close attention is just going to assume that Harry and Hermione are going to end up together at some point. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was clearly never Rowling's thought process. No, not at all. She always thought of them as just more like platonic relationship, just like brother and sister. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think, I think there's almost a little bit of a uh, Kirk, Spock, McCoy thing going on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You know, where, where Ron is Ron is actually the more emotional one, and uh, Hermione is the more logical one, and then, you know, Harry is Kirk. He's the one who has to act on the advice from those two. Wow. I need to rewatch them all now. <laughs> <laughs> I need to rewatch them all and every episode of Star Trek. Yes, of course. Because <laughs> I always need to rewatch all of those things, so that's not really a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I just need, I don't need to really need an excuse, but it's nice to have one. She, she's. I, I found her line delivery to be a little smoother than it than it had been, especially the very first movie. I thought her line delivery was very stilted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when she's not mouthing the lines anymore. Yeah, now, now she seems to actually be <laughs> acting the lines instead of just saying them. 
Well, she's the one I saw a lot of growth in because she had a lot to react to it being called a mudblood and, and, of course, getting that emotional reaction. You actually believe she's been emotionally stabbed through the heart at one point. Mm -hmm. And then she's also got the, you know, the stuff going on with the time turner. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a little mystery to what's going on with her character, which I think was very well played. It's a little bit more subtle in the movie than it is in the book. Not that it's really subtle because she just keeps appearing and Ron keeps saying, where did she come from? Did anybody see her before? Uh, <laughs> but in the book, I think they made it a little bit more in your face that she's doing this without explaining how. Right. She yeah. just keeps getting more and more stressed and stressed and <laughs> frazzled. But I, I thought, you know, it, it was... I would say, for the most part, the movie as compared to the book, that the book is more suspenseful than the movie was. I yeah. Thought, yeah, I thought there was more, uh, like the first scene when Harry, not the first scene, but early on when Harry leaves and then he's on the night bus, I thought mm -hmm. that was more foreboding than it was in the, in the movie. In the movie, it was a little bit more played for fun. That's... That was one of the things that actually does bug me about the movie, I think, <laughs> is basically well, the very first scene. You know, he's sitting under the covers doing limos with his wand. And then, like, a few scenes later, they make a big deal about, you know, you can't do magic outside of school when he blows up his Aunt Marge. You know, I'm like, you were just doing magic under the covers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they, they kind of just sweep that under the rug in the, in the movie. In In the book, he has a flashlight. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's definitely a few things on this. As far as the tone goes, they they played up the comedy, and I like that. But they also play with a few things that they don't quite keep. Um, what's the word? Consistent. Consistent through the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I, I agree with that. And and it's it's. I mean, it's a relatively minor point, or a you know, kind of a nitpick to to point that out. But that's that's what we're here for. <laughs> so, yeah, right. so I, I agree with you, and I and I did notice that as well that that he's using magic and it doesn't matter, but then he uses magic uses magic and he ma it does matter. Right, and I think the only reason it bugs me is because it's like it just thinking strictly on the movie, not thinking on the book, that throws it off in my head, and it's like that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Consistent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and then you know Fudge, although I I kind of like the way he. He sweeps it under the carpet after the uh, after the incident with the ant, uh, because okay. he's he's clearly just bowing to whatever forces come at him from any side. You know, Dumbledore's pressuring him. Okay, I'll give in to this. Oh, the <laughs> uh, the Death Eaters are pressuring me. I'll give in to that. You know, it doesn't matter what what end is is giving him pressure, but he always just goes with what he sees as the path of least resistance. Correct. Yeah. So, and and that makes him a terrible minister of magic, but. Yeah. Typ kind of a typical politician, though. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, a scene that I truly did not like in the in the movie because it just screams exposition to me. And I mentioned it last time thinking, you know, because I mix mixed up which movie it was in. Uh, but the scene when they when they're uh, when they're discussing what ha what uh, Sirius's background was and how, you know, and at least their understanding of what his background is. And Harry's there with the cloak, the invisibility cloak, and he's hearing it all. 
Oh yeah, the three brooms. Yeah, yeah. I I really I didn't care for that scene at all because it just like I said it doesn't feel natural when they're discussing right. it. They're saying things that they all know and they're just repeating it as if you know as if it's a natural conversation to just say that these things over and over again. Uh, I I didn't feel it was natural in the book and I didn't think it was natural in the movie either. I'll agree with that. It, it felt like well like the X Men. When people would just announce what they're doing and, and the backstory for no reason, Chris, it's like Chris Claremont wrote that scene. Yeah, and it just it just felt forced to me. And even yeah, definitely in the movie, it's like, hold on, let's go to the secret little room and <laughs> and, <laughs> and tell you why this is, tell you why we're so concerned. You know, it would have been much. I think it would have been much better if it had been uh, Mr. Weasley telling Harry. Or something along those lines, because Harry at that point is saying, you know, why is everybody so upset about this or whatever? He's got a reason to ask it, which would make the exposition seem much, so much more natural. Mm-hmm. Right. And they obviously they left out a big plot point there with the whole, you know, secret keeper and. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But- they. Yeah, they really. Uh, well, I mean, to some extent, I think they had to because you know you had to streamline it somewhere. Right. You know, the movie was, how long is this movie? That's a good question. 142 minutes. So, so over was, two hours. Yeah, two, 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 hours, hours. two hours, 20 minutes already. So I could see where, you know, okay, we got to cut out a few things, and the Secret Keeper thing is probably going to reek of even more exposition if we try and put that in there. <laughs> I think I wish I, I can understand leaving out this like explaining the secret keeper, but I wish they had put more gravity into why everybody thought this happened and you know why they thought Peter Pettigrew was the one who got killed, you know, by a serious just a little you just you just broke up on me. I didn't get that last point you just made. Uh, they, they left out the entire backstory of the Marauders, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, that's that's an emotional bedrock for the elder generation, the parents, the the relationship with Sirius, and even um, David Thewlis. I <laughs> just uh, Lupin. I mean, that's a huge chunk. Plus, they're the ones that had the map, and none of that is. is yeah, they map. don't really explain the map. It's just there. Right. Like, how does? Lupin know that that's a map. Got <laughs> mm-hmm. it, but now I also thought, and and I don't think you could really fix this. I just think it's a matter of written word as opposed to on film. I thought the ending, when we find out that it's Pettigrew and not Sirius, and Snape comes in, and Harry has to make the choice there as to what to do. I thought in the book it was a more suspenseful thing, and I think there was a little bit more of, more of an ability to have the book make you think, or not, not make you think, but make you question whether or not he was doing the right thing. Hmm. In the movie, I think you know it had to be paced in a way where it moved, moved along fairly quickly, and I'm not sure you could get that same emotional gravitas to the scene that you did in the book. No, because, I mean, the book... You, you, I mean, the, the reader is pacing the book in a lot of ways, or the, the way the writer does it is, is number of words, chunks of, of, you know, text. And with that, it did draw out a little bit where you actually kind of think maybe Snape's gonna need to help. He's, he's getting there to help. Yeah. And he's, well, 
or, or may, maybe Snape, you know, maybe maybe Harry just screwed it up by freeing the guy who did kill mm-hmm. his, his father or whatever, you know. It, it's just that there's so there was there was just so much weight to it, so much more weight to it in the book. I thought. Right, agreed. Now I I think they did a good job with that scene in the movie with the rest of the movie and the pacing. And oh, speaking of new characters, um, Wormtail. Oh yeah, yeah. What's that actor's name? Uh. Um, I'll tell you in a moment. Timothy Spall. I had to think of it. He was spot on. He yeah. looks exactly like Wormtail in my mind. Yes, I agree. He, he he was he he goes along with the past casting where it's like that's exactly what I pictured as I read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and just just that look on his face just before he goes back into rat form. Oh, that he, when smile he, when he smiles and waves before he does it. I just Ooh. think like like you just want to go over and throttle him, <laughs> but, yeah. but but it was you know it was perfectly effective I thought. Except that he falls out of his clothes, which he had on. Yeah. <laughs> transfigured into anyway. Another thing. Yes, that's study. that's another good point, and you know what? That's one that for whatever reason I had not considered. Now I, I didn't I didn't need him to transfigure into human form naked though. Oh, that's true. So, when, I, you know, I guess I guess the the solution would be to not, to have the clothes disappear with him, but you know, I guess which they is what happened yeah. when he appeared as you know from scabbers into a human. He had clothes on. But I I think they I, I would imagine they knew what they were doing. You know, they they realized that they were doing that, right. but probably thought it's worth it just to get the cool shot of him crawling out of the clothes. Mm-hmm. Or to have that as a reason why they couldn't blast him with their wands as he ran away. Right. I love that, though. You, you know, he picks up the wand, and he's trying to curse him, and then, you know, Harry Expelliarmus is the wand out of his hand, and then, yeah, like you said, that little wave, and you just want to punch him. <laughs> exactly. Now, I, another scene that I thought was really well done in this was when uh, Lupin is giving Harry his private lessons, and when he finally create, creates the Patronus... Like you, you can feel that joy and and the excitement of the moment for him. And I just thought, and the, you know, the background music, everything that was going on, I thought it was just really well put together, and and, and well acted. It, it reminded, you know, it reminds me of the first scene, like you know, when uh, when Su- Superman learns how to fly, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of. Uh... New additions. We got Dementors in this movie. What did you think of the physical makeup of the Dementors? Still scares the shit out of me. <laughs> now, they change as the movies go along. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you this have a favorite Dementor look? This is my... I mean, this, to me, yeah. this is where they're the most scary. Yeah. Because they're so nebulous in their shape. Where mm-hmm. later, they have a little bit more conformity to a human... At least a human anatomy to some extent. Yeah, I would, I would tend to agree with that, and uh, I, I do think again that they were very, they were very well portrayed. And in the book, I thought they were even more frightening in the book again. But I think oh. that's. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just agreeing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you had. A, I thought you came up with some kind of point. Well, uh, but I, I, I. Go ahead. <laughs> they're so effective. You've been to Universal, right? Yes. You have you been on the Hogwarts Express ride? Yes, and I think it's great. Yeah, <laughs> there's a point. The first time we went, I'm sitting next to the frosted window and the lights start to flicker and I start feeling this panic. 
and a hand, you know, the Dementor's hand touches the window, and I swear I thought I was going to pass out. (laughs) Yeah. So that's how effective they are in both the book and the movie, that they're probably one of the most terrifying aspects in, in, in a story that has werewolves. And a giant clown in the box. Oh, yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I watched it to prep for the show today. I, you know, I like to do a rewatch when I can. And uh, when they did the clown in the box, Melissa said, that's even scarier than the thing they were scared of. <laughs> I agree. I can't watch that scene. You, you should have seen me last night. I was sitting on the couch huddled up, covering my eyes, yeah. just waiting for <laughs> the next scene. I was wondering if I should take advantage of this and scare her. Just be able to appear at the end of the couch. What did you think of the form and the special effects for the werewolf? It's very different. It is. Uh, I always pictured I, the Lon Chaney werewolf, personally. Well, I pictured that, or American Werewolf in London, the well, original. Well, closer to that, except it's, yeah. an, it's an emaciated American Werewolf in London. Yeah, I really kind of. like it. I like how, I mean, it's definitely a different form and skeletal. And um, I, I always think of the werewolves from like Underworld. Oh, that's a good one. But they're muscular and they're they're really muscular and stuff. But I like, like you said, how he's like emaciated and the transformation. Still, I was thinking about the effects. I still think they hold up mm-hmm. really well. I think they do as well. And I, I, I liked the fact that it was a different looking werewolf. It looks more like a combination of man and wolf then it's it's not that he's turning into a wolf and it's not that he's turning into a man with long hair you know with long fuzzy hair on his face like Lon Chaney which is what you know that is my my image of a werewolf in my mind but I can honestly say it's not the most evocative uh of for fear uh this this was yeah the belt the belt and the the button-up shirt (laughs) yeah this this you know i I mean i guess any of them would be truly scary but this this seems to be among the scariest and there's a certain realism to the fact that he doesn't seem to gain mass true i hadn't thought about that right you know he's kind of like stretching his nat his his already existing body yeah that's what it feels like and that was something I think that that's kind of shown in the movie and in the book, with what his what his body goes through. You know, when he wakes up the next day, you know, kind of he has to really recover from it because his body takes yeah. a beating. I like that. I, I did like that. You know how he was he was really under the weather, or you know, in their minds, he just they just thought he was just really sickly, but really it was just like you said, recovering. Yeah. <laughs> And Snape takes advantage of it to be a jerk. <laughs> yes, he does. But, you know, at, at this point, you know, we have no reason to think Snape has any redeeming values or redeeming personality traits. Except for in that scene with the werewolf when he comes out and he's like, comes out from underneath the Whomping Willow and he's attacking the kids a little bit. And then he sees the werewolf and turns around and guards them. Yeah, that's true. He does get them behind him. That's the only redeeming quality that you see in the movie. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty much it. And I, I I like that despite the fact that he is definitely an antagonist throughout so far, he is not played as a one-dimensional character. No. He's, as he's, Alan Rickman would say, because of what I know. <laughs> and I, 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 I don't know. There's just... Uh, I just love the way he, he delivers his lines. And, you know, when he takes over the class and... I don't even remember what, what page it was, like 432. 
He says, turn to page 432. <laughs> and he just keeps repeating it. And then he, like, uses his wand to turn Harry's book to that page. <laughs> 394. That's 394. <laughs> almost, he almost does it like John Houseman. Yes. <laughs> I have a ring that has page 394 on it. I just I love it. <laughs> I would not be at all surprised, actually, if he did watch John Houseman in the paper chase to kind of get his teacher persona from there. I could see that. Because he definitely has some delivery like like that, which I hadn't really thought of before. Uh, let's see. Where else do we have to go with this? I did not. Go ahead. You had something? I was going to ask what you thought of the direction overall and how different it is from Chris Columbus's two movies. I got to say, I thought it was a welcome change. Uh, I like Christopher Columbus's style for a family movie, but the book changed the tone from family, young adult, as we talked about earlier, to a slightly more sophisticated, slightly older young adult mm -hmm. type story. And I think the direction reflects that. I think it's a, a darker, more moody direction. Uh, I think it's... By by the nature of the story itself, it's a more suspenseful telling uh, than what we've had so far. And not that the other stories weren't suspenseful, but I think the other stories were more adventures, whereas this is a little bit this is delving a little bit more into the horror kind of realm. Mm -hmm. And I think the directing reflected that really well. I think the movie was well paced throughout. Mm -hmm. uh, it's as we said, two hours and twenty minutes long. It doesn't feel that long when you're watching it. It moves along mm -hmm. at a fairly brisk pace. Uh, I thought he got good performances from his actors. I don't know if all of that is his doing or, and you know, some of it might just be that the young actors are maturing and getting older and learning how to act better. But certainly he is the beneficiary of that. If that's the reason. And see, I end up, I mean, this is one of, this is, I'm going to be upfront. It's my least favorite movie in the series. Even okay. though I think, I think Karan is a great director. I love some of the things he did to me the the, the change was very jarring and I wasn't quite ready for it. And it's still, that still stays with me if I'm watching the movies in sequence. He did some fantastic shots, like going through all the, the clock machinery and mm -hmm. then through the glass into the courtyard, things like that. It was beautifully shot. And you know, it's not a surprise. He ended up winning an Oscar, but it was just, it was like changing the gears a little quicker than I was ready for. That's, that's all fair, but I, didn't mind the things that you minded, but, uh, right. but I but I don't I don't disagree with what you're saying. I'm just saying you know we had a different take on yeah. that. How about you, Holly? What'd you think? I I don't yeah I'm with you, Paul. I don't really mind the change. I mean from the very beginning you know it's going to be different. First like the the Harry Potter in the Prisoner of Azkaban the the tones are in silver instead of in warm gold and the the music is a slightly minor key so you know it's going to be different uh, feel of the movie. Um, this is the first movie where they start showing them their like individuality. They're not wearing their robes the whole time. When they do wear the robes, they have like personality to the robes. Like somebody has, is all buttoned up. Somebody's not, somebody's got their robes slung over their shoulder, you know? <laughs> so there's, and like you said, um, just a, just a different tone. And the, the shots are beautiful. Mm -hmm. If you, Notice this is where they get a lot of the things that they have put into other things. So, like, connecting the Hogwarts castle and the the look of it, like, from this 
corridor to another corridor. This is where they start to expand and show how the castle is laid out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and add the bridge outside. Add the bridge outside, right. You know, from here on out, you they kind of keep some of those items that they added. I love, like, the three broomsticks. Oh, no, the leaky cauldron. It, well, and three broomsticks, but three leaky cauldron, the way it looks, and you can see the everyday life, like the housekeeping witch mm. and, you know, just stuff like that. And the wizard reading the, the physics book. <laughs> Stirring a cup without a wand, by the way. Again, without a wand. That's... <laughs> don't get me started. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, it's one of those consistency things, you know. There's several times throughout the movie where they just do magic without wands. And I don't know why that bugs me so much. <laughs> I thought th- I always thought that there was certain magic they could do without their wands. Right. But I don't I mean, have I've... I don't have a true feel for what they could you know what they would need it for and what they wouldn't. Yeah. Right, and I think this is that's where it starts getting confusing. Like, do you need the wand or do you not need the wand? And, and because they weren't using it, you know, they weren't keeping consistency, it gets a little little muddled. But I mean, it's still cool shots. <laughs> Yeah, I I can't can't argue with anything you're saying. I I was surprised that Dave said this is his least favorite of the series. <laughs> that, that surprised me a little bit. It it ties with another one. I'm not going to say which one. Okay, and well, yeah, we'll get there. You know, little by little, we're getting through this series. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't I don't we don't necessarily have to give our ratings on future films just yet. No, no. You know, we'll, I'll, I'll I'll say this one used to be one of my least favorites, and then. As I've rewatched it, it's grown on me, and so it's definitely bumped up into the series. So I like it. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say I did great, I gain a more more appreciation for it when we saw it on the big screen for the first time, because uh, that's where I really got some of the feel for the framing and what he was doing. And again, it's a beautifully shot movie. It's just for some reason it just hits me wrong. See, I like the transitions with the seasons and stuff mm-hmm. like that, but there are some things that really bug me, like how they really took. The Whomping Willow, and it's way outside of the castle, and Hagrid's hut's way down that hill. Like, that doesn't make any sense. It needs to be right by the castle with some of the things that they're doing, but mm. that's just me. You know what I found uh, vexing to some extent was what Harry was able to do with the cloak. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like, you know, like if, if you took a blanket and put it over yourself, a very big blanket even, you know, I'll give you as big as you want. Uh, and you start being active, odds are some of your limbs are going to show from underneath it once in a while. Mm-hmm. And he's doing things. I mean, he when like he's throwing snowballs and he's <laughs> kicking people's asses and stuff, and you, and you never see anything. And I just felt like that just didn't feel real to me. Agreed. Yeah. It should have been something which they never did establish that once you put that on, your whole body's invisible, whether it's under the cloak or not. Like, if that, if that was the case, if they had that as kind of the rule, then it wouldn't have disturbed me. But my understanding is the only thing you can't see is what's under the cloak. So if anything right, comes yeah. out from under the cloak, you see it. So if you fit three people under their cloak and you can't see their feet, something's off. Yeah, exactly. So And, and, and that scene when he's basically saving Ron and Hermione from... Uh, from from Malfoy and, and company, that's the one where it really just kind of stood out to me. Because as I said, he was so active in that scene that it just seemed like they should have either been able to grab a hold of him 
or every once in a while we should have seen a leg or an arm or something. Right. It, it just hit me that in the book. Yeah. It just hit me that he walks out of the candy store and you see the, the lollipop being eaten. He's supposed <laughs> to be under the cloak. Yeah. How did, how's he getting that, that lollipop into me. his mouth? Yeah. He's doing it through the cloak. You don't really see it, the, the lollipop being eaten, but, but it's, it's, being it's carried around. It's being which, carried in their saliva. Well, that was because he stole it out of Neville's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. I understand what they were doing. They're trying to track the shot so you can see where Harry is. But you could have done that with his footprints, mm-hmm. which they did later when he knocked over like yeah, the, the course curlers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it, like I said, it was it's it's nitpicky, but it is something that <laughs> stood out to me and and right. it bothered me a little bit as I watched it. Uh, anything else before we start to rate this and place it in where we're going to win our order? Although we already know where Dave's putting it. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Well, there's something that bugs me, but it's hard to explain because it's like why the, the whole Harry's wand being given to, or uh, Harry's broom being given to him at the very end of the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that bugs me. <laughs> so, well, I'm I mean, to, I, if I remember correctly, and it's been a long time since I did the book, but if, if I remember the book correctly, that happened significantly earlier because mm-hmm. they confiscate it to make sure that it, it's not somehow booby trapped or whatever right exactly and, and now i kind of get what they're doing because they were cutting out a big like some of the big issues because you know harry and ron and hermione had a whole big fight and they're not talking to her because she turns in the broom to mcgonagall and you know harry had lost his broom during the quidditch match because he saw sirius as a dog in the stands not as a grim in the clouds anyway so <laughs> there are some things that I'm like, because I know the books, that didn't make any sense. But I'm trying to think of it as just the movie. And in just the movie, does that mean that they're still at school? Are they still playing Quidditch? Are they, do they have the rest of the year to go? How did, you know, when does it end? Like, what's the time frame that it ends? Are they still in school or are they going, is this the end of the summer? Hmm. I think that's something that bugs me. <laughs> yeah, because in the book, in the book, it all kind of goes nice and neatly to the end of the school year. Right. Yeah. Uh, in the movie, I'm trying to remember, at the end of it, I guess it is somewhat warmer at that point. So I guess I guess it would be the spring. I just don't know if it's the very end of the school year. Although although we do have Lupin leaving and everything, so I guess it is oh, the end of the true. school year. Oh, that's true. But he resigned. So it was like he could, it could have been any time in the year. See, I've always taken it as, as, if not the very end, then towards the end. Kind of like when you get towards the part – Shortly after spring break, where everything's just winding down. Yeah, I would I would say that if it's not the end, it's then. So I, I'm okay with that. Uh, but if it bothers you, then it bothers you. That's you know, that's the you know, that's part of the uh, the viewing process and the rating process in the movie that we have to all consider. And I will say this is because I keep I I don't want to drag down the movie um, before I give my rating, but I will say this has one of my favorite. Quotes. Which is what? The happiness can be found in the darkness of times, even if one only remembers to turn on the light. That is a good I love that quote. I have it, like, all over our house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just my favorite. Oh, and, yeah, that's just... Why the long faces? Why the long faces. <laughs> yeah, the little shrunken head. <laughs> well, and, and that's, that has a lot to do with what I was saying about that scene being so much more lighthearted. 
the shrunken head is what really makes that that and just a couple of things like the you know the old person walking in front of the bus <laughs> or, or, or cutting through in between two buses yes <laughs> but some of the, and some of the special effects there are just you know terrific i think right and again they still hold up and that's something she didn't have in the i mean she didn't have shrunken head talking but she was like i wish i had made my shrunken head talk in the book so yeah. even jk rowling was like okay that's a good addition and that, that <laughs> added a lot to the universal experience as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> so on the jaws scale where does this fall for you guys and let me quickly give you again jaws is pretty much a perfect movie uh, very few flaws, if any, and just one of the all-time greats. Jaws 2, really solid, worthy of multiple reviewings. Uh, you know, not too many mistakes, but just not quite at that great level. Jaws 3, watchable, enjoyable, but not much more than that. And Jaws 4 is a bad movie. Where do you <laughs> place this one? I'm going to go with Jaws 3. Because it doesn't have the rewatch value of the two before or any of the movies after. It's it, it's kind of frustrating to watch sometimes. Even though it's beautiful, it never emotionally connects with me. And I think the main reason is they cut out the marauders. They cut out the, the generation before that kind of sets the tone for where this generation is going. Mm-hmm. All right. That's fair enough. Holly? Uh, for me, it's a... It's a... Mm, it's a higher Jaws 2. <laughs> um, definitely higher than, uh, say, Chamber of Secrets for me. Because I do, I mean, I agree that they cut out a lot of things. And there's some things that when you're watching the movie, it doesn't make sense because they just don't explain it. But I like the addition of the characters of Sirius and Lupin and uh, Trelawney and their acting and the better acting. And it is be- visually beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to kind of go with you, Holly. I, I see it as a pretty solid Jaws 2. Um, I liked the new characters. I, I do feel that some of their personalities, some of their moments are streamlined for the sake of fitting the movie into 2 hours and 20 minutes. Uh, again, I didn't feel it felt like 2 hours and 20 minutes. I felt like it moved along fairly quickly. I do think it has rewatchability for me. So I'm going to go with a, you know, a solid Jaws 2 on it. So now that said... Let's get to our rankings among the Harry Potters to date. So, Dave, you had Harry uh, Chamber of Secrets ahead of Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah. And then you're putting this as the third of three right now? This will be the third of three, yep. Okay. So How about you, Holly? Two, where one, you, three. Holly, you were one, two. And where where is this one slotting in with that? This one's – so, I mean, I think it's uh... – Sorcerer's Stone, and then Prisoner of Azkaban, and then Chamber of Secrets. So far. Okay, so, so you're, so I'm just trying to keep keep track here. <laughs> Dave, Dave is two one three, mm-hmm. and you are one three two. Yes. Okay, and I'm gonna make it so that we're all different, and I'm actually <laughs> gonna say of the three, this is my favorite. Ooh, ooh. So I'm gonna go three two one as my sequence so far. And that said, it's my favorite. They all, all three have ranked as yours too so far. So, you know, fa- favorite among equals almost. <laughs> but I, you know, it's so far so good. I, I, I just really did enjoy the, the change in tone. I, I did. 
like the more mature feel about it. I like the new characters we got. Uh, I like the more mature acting style out of out of our young actors in it. So, you know, to me, there wasn't a lot to not like about this movie. So that's why, for me, it's going to rank as the highest of the three so far. So now I'm Mr. Negative. Oh, you, I don't think so. You, 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 you temporarily take over as Dr. No. <laughs> I'm Miss, Mrs. Negative on, you know, consistency. You know, this scene, they have a full corporeal Patronus, and this scene, it looks like a shield. It's, it's, <laughs> it's something... the same scene. But it, you know what? It's something I've dealt with in podcasting from the start to some extent. Some of it's my own feelings and some of it is criticism I've received in either iTunes reviews or, uh, you know, in, in emails that I've gotten where people aren't happy with your nitpicking so much sometimes, <laughs> but that is the idea of what we do just because I nitpick a movie or, you know, that we nitpick a movie or a television show or a comic book or whatever it is we're rating doesn't say I don't like it. But right. it's impossible to me, it's impossible to be a good critic of these things without being able to say these are the positives and these are the negatives. If you're only going to focus on one or the other, then you're not really being reasonable in your in your critique. Yeah. You have to point out both, I think. And sometimes you just pull up a map of New York just to place everything in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes or sometimes we go to the daily news building yes <laughs> anyway thanks again guys for coming on i appreciate well, it for having us and you know down the line we'll be back and we'll be doing the goblet of fire and we'll see where it ranks among the then four movies but until then <laughs> thank you once again thank you thank you and thank you everybody for listening Look who's here. Ah, come to see the show. You, you foul and loathe them evil little cockroach. Hermione, no. He's not worth it. Malfoy, you okay? Let's go. Come, quick. Let's go. Who Run for words to anyone understood. That felt good. Not good. Brilliant. <laughs>